Uh, Father, we do uh, thank you that you are near to us now, that Christ has promised that when two or more are gathered, he is with us. Uh, we pray he'd be helping us to understand and uh, be blessed by your word, to see Christ in it, and to see how he speaks to us wherever our life might be at this evening. And we do pray this for his sake. Amen. Okay, so last week we saw Israel spiraling out of control, away from faithfulness to God. From king to king, things didn't seem to be getting any better. Uh, in the young adults group that Serena and I helped run, uh, we split into three groups. We each tried to pick a king and come up with a rating as to how they were doing as a king. The three were Zimri, Omri, and Ahab. In the three groups, Zimri got 10 out of 10, evil rating. Omri got an F and Ahab got a plus 55,000 out of 10 evil rating. So things in Israel were getting pretty bad. And as for Ahab, uh, why he got plus 55,000, it says he did more evil in the Lord's sight than all who were before him. And if that were not enough, he married Jezebel and then proceeded to serve Baal and bow in worship to him. So Ahab and Jezebel, they become the king and queen of Baal. And from an Israelite, Yahweh-worshipping society? Does that mean they became a tolerant, multicultural, multi-faith society? Well, not so much, because Jezebel went about slaughtering the Lord's prophets. Uh, but just like God likes to do, uh, when things looked incredibly dark and hopeless, that was when he chose to step in in a way nobody could have expected. Through two very different men, through a courageous but slightly anxious palace manager, an eccentric loudmouth prophet called Elijah. So our first section, public enemies, verses 1 to 15. So first up, the courageous but slightly anxious palace manager, Obadiah. So Obadiah, he was in charge of Ahab's palace. He would have stood in the background uh, as Ahab and Jezebel were plotting this whole slaughtering of the prophets thing. He would have heard about their plans. Uh, but we hear Obadiah He's a man who greatly feared the Lord, which actually leads him to take a hundred prophets and hide them, 50 men to a cave, provide them with food and water. So it's like the Oscar Schindler, if you've seen Schindler's list of the ancient world, he was somehow making sure these prophets could escape with their lives. And he does all this in secret, uh, knowing that if Jezebel caught wind of it, his neck would be on the chopping block. It's an incredibly brave move from Obadiah and through him, God was powerfully and unexpectedly at work saving his people. On the other hand, there's the loudmouth, eccentric prophet, Elijah, who steps onto the scene in chapter 17. We hear now Elijah the Tishbite from uh, the Gilead settlers says to Ahab, Blanco, he says to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Elijah, he seems like one of those personalities, I'm sure you all know one, who steps into the room and kind of just takes over. He commands everyone's attention. It's like a whirlwind has hit the room. So I think it kind of makes sense. It's kind of fitting that this is Elijah's introduction. He walks into the scene, walks up to the king and says, it's not going to rain unless I say so. Then he walks away, an absolute mic drop. But straight after that, God tells Elijah to go hide in the wilderness, presumably because of this one-liner. Uh, and then in 18 verse 1, God finally, after three years, says, Elijah, you can go back now, say to the king, 
that rain is coming. After three long years of Elijah living in hiding in the countryside, God finally says that your original service is over. Go and confront the king again. Which is immediately followed by one of the maybe most obvious statements in scripture when it says the famine was severe in Samaria. Because if the rainmaker was sitting twiddling his thumbs for the past three years, that would kind of make sense. And you'd think maybe that should be a hint to Ahab and Jezebel and Israel. Because Baal, the god they were worshipping, he was meant to be the god of everything fertility, of creating sustaining life, of rain, of crops, of food. But this god of fertility is looking pretty impotent for the last three years. Which shows us the human capacity, I think, for forgiving our false gods. It's pretty scary sometimes. We can live for years and years in desperation and misery without ever questioning that maybe our gods can't actually deliver on the promises that they've made to us. But we cut back to the palace. King Ahab's just called Obadiah to him. The king then makes a request to Obadiah. He says, go throughout the land to every spring and to every wadi. Perhaps we'll find grass so that we can keep the horses and mules alive and we'll not have to destroy any cattle. Now, I don't know if you were like me when you read that verse, but I was kind of expecting it to end with, let's go find some water to keep our people alive. But no, Ahab, he's more focused on the mules, on the horses, on the cows. Uh, They might not be golden calves, but Ahab is certainly treating them like they are. And they divide the land in half, Obadiah, Ahab, and Ahab goes one way by himself, Obadiah the other, uh, which you'd assume meant it was a pretty desperate situation if the king himself is personally going out into the half the land looking for water. But remember, all this time, Elijah, he's wandering back to the king's palace, so if one of them is going to meet him, you'd have to assume it's a 50-50 chance. It's a flip of the coin job, but... Surprise, surprise, Obadiah, he wins the coin toss because it's the hand of God flipping the coin. Verse 7, it says, While Obadiah was walking along the road, Elijah suddenly met him. When Obadiah recognized him, he fell face down, and he said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? It is I, he replied. Go tell your lord, Elijah is here. But Obadiah, he says, Are you nuts? You haven't seen your face on every wanted poster in Israel? Your public enemy number one, your Ahab's white whale. As soon as I tell Ahab that I found you, he's going to get his hopes up, then you'll, you know, you being you, you'll probably flake out and get spirited away somewhere into the wilderness. Then I'll have a guillotine hanging over my head. So Elijah says, as the Lord of armies lives, whose presence I stand today, I will present myself to Ahab. And if you haven't picked up on it in their ministry or in their conversation, these two men are actually pretty different. But both are faithful to God's call on their lives. God uses both of them powerfully for his kingdom. Which I think should be an encouragement to all of us that we don't have to be the alpha, we don't have to be the commanding personality for God to use us powerfully for his kingdom. Obadiah was at work powerfully in the background the entire time. Uh, But Obadiah, he trusts Elijah's words just enough to go get Ahab, which brings us to part two. The battle on Baal Mountain, verses 16 to 40. So Elijah, he gets Ahab, 
he brings him back to Elijah, and it's, you could say it's not the warmest of embraces. Ahab says to Elijah, is that you, the one ruining Israel? But Elijah, he's never one to back down. He replies by saying, I haven't ruined Israel, but you have, because you've abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. And so as you do, he proposes a duel. He says, now summon all Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel along with the 450 prophets of Baal. And it's a pretty bold suggestion. We might expect Ahab's just going to laugh and then cut Elijah's head off. Uh, But then surprisingly, without question, he just says yes. In verse 20, it says, Ahab summoned all the Israelites, gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel, which might seem surprising, but I can think of a couple reasons why this may have been appealing to him. For one, this battle was happening on Mount Carmel, which was kind of known as Baal Mountain, so it was a home ground advantage. Ahab is gathering all Israel, they're playing to a packed stadium. So if this was a footy game, it'd be on prime time with 100 million viewers worldwide. It promises to be good entertainment, good audience, good for the economy, and pretty much a guaranteed victory. So how could you pass that up? But how did he know it was a guaranteed victory? Well, there are three reasons, I think, aside from the home ground advantage. For one, it was 450 prophets against one. In verse 22, Elijah says to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. You can almost hear a little nervous laugh in there and a follow-up of, uh, there are no other prophets of the Lord that I know of, certainly not in any caves hidden nearby. Uh, But as far as they know, he's standing alone as the Lord's prophets against 450 prophets of Baal. It would have been a pretty intimidating scene. The second thing, they choose their weapon first. So it's just like an old-style Western, if you've seen one of them. There's two gunslingers facing up for a duel. The one who's more confident says, you pick the pistol first, uh, because they, you know, don't want to assume that there might be one filled with blanks. They're giving them the benefit of the doubt. Elijah, he does the same. He says, give us two balls. You choose one, cut it up, put it on the wood. Don't light the fire, I'll do the same. You call on the name of your God, I'll call on the name of my God. The God who answers with fire... He is God. And then thirdly, just to really and slightly obnoxiously hammer the point home, Elijah pours water all over the altar. When it's Elijah's turn to make his altar, he digs up a trench trench large enough to hold four gallons of water. And he asks all of them to fill the trench, douse it, pour water everywhere. And remember, this is the middle of a three-year drought. This is like in the Queensland summer in water restrictions, if you remember when those used to happen. Uh, You see someone across the street washing their car and you kind of peer through your blinds, shake your head, then all your neighbours would be doing the same thing. It's kind of like that. Um, So Elijah, he'd want to be pretty sure this is going to work. All the odds seem stacked against him, but of course that's the way that God likes it. And never one to doubt, Elijah, he still gives a throwdown. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. The people didn't answer him a word. So they aren't exclusively devoted to Baal. 
They aren't exclusively devoted to Yahweh. As my dad would say, they're kind of betting 50 cents each way. So they've set the rules, they're ready for a fight. First round, prophets of Baal. Take the ball they gave, prepare it. They call in the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. What happens? There is no sound, no one answered. So all of these prayers of the 450 prophets of Baal, they're going straight to voicemail. There are tumbleweeds blowing across Mount Carmel. The silence is deafening. But it's not just the silence of Baal that's deafening. What's King Ahab saying in all this? Well, if you look at your passage, after verse 17, we don't hear King Ahab say a word the rest of the chapter. Just like his god Baal, he falls silent. Throughout the story, we watch Ahab, he's struggling to find Elijah, he's struggling to find food and water, just like his god, Ahab, is incapable. He can't turn up when they need him. Which I think is supposed to remind us of Psalm 115. Uh, I'll read it from verse 4. It says this, Their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell, they have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, they cannot make a sound with their throats, those who make them become like them, as are all who trust in them. Now that last line is the real punchline, isn't it? Those who make them become like them, as all the, who, who follow in them. And if we look at 1 Kings 18, it's kind of like Psalm 115 in narrative form, watching Ahab in real time becoming like his God, becoming silent, becoming absent, becoming incapable, which I think holds a bit of a warning for us. If we worship the living God, then we will become more and more alive. But if we worship our idols, we try to find life, in the things weighed down in this world, then we will become like them. We will slowly but surely become lifeless. Our idols, they always promise us life and happiness, but they can never ultimately deliver. But God can, and he does, in every way that they can't. But then in stark contrast to Ahab's silence is Elijah, who never seems to shut up, because he seems to be the worst kind of sore winner, we read that Elijah mocked them at noon. He's saying, shout louder so that your God can hear you. Maybe he's thinking hard about something. Maybe he's gone for a walk. Maybe he's having a sleep. Some translations say maybe he's on the toilet. He certainly doesn't hold back. And desperate times, they call for desperate measures. The prophets of Baal, they start shouting, they start cutting themselves with swords and spears, which was their custom in worshipping Baal. We read that all afternoon they kept on raving. For hours they were rambling and raving, but the result is still the same. There was no sound, no one answered, no one paid attention. The only thing more horrific than this frenzied sound of their worship is the silence of their God. They were thinking that Baal would just turn up if they got a bit of religious fever going, if they yelled loudly enough or danced harder or gave more of their blood, sweat and tears in their worship. It's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? 
But unfortunately, I think we all have that same tendency to do that same thing. We all have ways that we try and perform to get God to show up in our lives and ways that we try and sacrifice ourselves, try and push ourselves, sacrifice time with our family, beat ourselves up, punish ourselves, just trying to deal with our guilt, trying to get God to turn up in our lives. So just think, when was the last time that you messed up in a way you were really disappointed with yourself? Did you feel the need to punish yourself in whatever way to show God that you're really repentant, to show that you're really sorry? And we all have ways of performing, of trying to atone for our own sin. But if we know the God of grace, then there's no need for that kind of thing at all which we see when Elijah steps up to the plate, he repairs the altar and he prays a simple prayer. He says, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant, that your word is what I've done all these things by. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that the people will know that you, the Lord, are God, that you have turned their hearts back. So after the prophets of Baal have been hollering and dancing and working themselves up into a religious frenzy for hours and hours, Elijah's prayer, it's refreshingly simple. It takes about 16 seconds, I timed it myself. But because he's speaking to the living God, we hear that the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, licked up the water that was in the trench, When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So Elijah, he prays simply and sanely because he knows God. And he knows that he doesn't actually need to work himself up into a frenzy for his God to hear him. But if we ask even the simplest prayers to the God who is there, he can can do more for us than we can ever ask, we can ever imagine. Which brings us to our final point, fire and rain. Verses 41 to 46, uh, where these two images, the fire and the rain, are where we're going to finish. Because in this story, it's, you know, it's a cool story, it's a fun story. uh, But I think if we look more closely at how the Bible leads up to this point, these two images are where we get the deepest gold for ourselves, I think. In that first image, uh, God, he, he answers Elijah's prayer with fire, which doesn't just prove that God was there, even though it definitely did that with style. Because it wasn't just a fire lighting up a pile of sticks or a big bond. It was an animal sacrifice that God led up. And if we look back throughout the Bible, this is actually the fourth time there'd been this kind of sacrifice, fire from God thing happening. The first three are up on the screen. Sorry, it's such small writing, but... They were in Leviticus 9, 1 Chronicles 21, and 2 Chronicles 7. And they were all key moments in the history of these sacrifices. The first one is when they were first instituted by God. The second is when David found the plot where the temple was going to be built. The third one was when the temple was finished and Solomon prayed over it. Three times they were pretty integral in the history of these sacrifices. God answered all of them with fire to show them that, his, that the forgiveness of sins can only come by the shedding of blood. And so the fact that God answers the same way on the top of Mount Carmel, that's meant to be significant. It's saying to us that this fire, it isn't just 
a cool pyrotechnic display, the fire was showing that God had accepted their sacrifice and by his grace, their sins had been atoned for. But this sacrifice and fire, of course, they were just like a test run for the sacrifice and fire that were to come. If every odd seemed stacked against Elijah, how much more was every odd stacked against Jesus on a hill outside Jerusalem? It was one man against all the powers of sin and darkness, against every political and religious leader, and what on first glance looked like just a naked Jewish guy being brutally executed on a cross. The odds seemed absolutely stacked against him. But that was where God was achieving his greatest victory, the greatest display of his power being shown in weakness, by the sacrifice of his only son, Jesus Christ, dying for our sake. And Jesus himself, he said this when he was thinking of the cross, he said, I came to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already set ablaze, but I have a baptism to undergo and how it consumes me until it is finished. He was saying, I'm not Elijah calling down the fire of judgment. I am the sacrifice. I'm the one who's going to be consumed by the fire of judgment. Jesus, he went up another mountain to take on the fire of God's wrath, to take on our sins, to bring forgiveness to everyone who trusts in him. And just like everyone on Mount Carmel, those who saw Jesus' death, saw the, camp, the temple curtain tear in two, saw the sky go dark, they all had to say, God truly was here. At the cross, almost no one believed that God would work a miracle, that anything impressive would happen, but it was there that God worked his greatest miracle. Not just the curtain tearing, the sky going dark, but the forgiveness of sins. Which brings us to the second image in this passage of the rain. Which we see in the last few verses of the chapter, it at first glance looks like a pretty little coda to this story. It can seem like a nice ending, but maybe a little bit anticlimactic. I mean, we just saw a firestorm from God. Now the story ends with Elijah saying, there's rain coming. Ahab goes to check out a little cloud coming on the horizon, then it rains. End. I mean, it's pretty cool that Elijah said that rain would come, then it did. Uh, it's pretty cool that the drought's over for their sake, but is there more to the rain? Well, again, I think if we've been listening to this story from the start, the rain is actually meant to be the high point of this story. Because I don't know if you remember, it was a little while ago, but we looked at 1 Kings chapter 8, where Solomon prayed over the opening of the temple. He prayed through a bunch of things that might or would happen to Israel. This is one of the things that he prayed. He said, when the skies are shut, there's no rain because they've sinned against you and they pray and they turn from their sins. May you hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants so that you may teach them to walk in the good way. May you send rain on your land that you gave your people as an inheritance. And so in this story, Solomon's prayer, it's become a reality. The sky was shut. There was no rain. There was a drought of judgment because Israel's faith had dried up. And there were three long years of dry land, of withering crops, of dying animals. But after that, God gave them rain. Where it says, in a little while the sky grew dark with clouds and wind, and there was a downpour. But if you look again at Solomon's prayer, this rain, it was always meant to be closely linked to the forgiveness of sins. 
It was only when the sins of God's people had been dealt with through a sacrifice that there could be forgiveness. This rain, it was meant to be an image of a downpour of forgiveness. Which you see all throughout the chapter, if you notice, if you're looking closely, it doesn't actually mention the drought in this whole chapter. Because the real crisis is much deeper than the drought, the real crisis is the lack of faith. And the real need isn't rain, but the forgiveness of sins. And it's the same pattern for us. If we look to the cross, if we trust in Jesus' death for our sake, his sacrifice to take on all of our sin, (coughs) pardon me, God, he's already promised that he will bring the cool rain of forgiveness pouring down on us. So when you stumble next and you follow the call of those idols, you feel that stain of guilt. Because again, you, you have that moment of realization, just like you've learned a thousand times, Indulging in that lust or unleashing in anger or spending way too much money on something you don't need, it doesn't actually make you feel better. But when you feel that stain of guilt and you're tempted to fall back into performing for God or trying to beat yourself up to atone for your own sins, in that moment, remember this little cloud the size of Ahab's hand. But more so, remember the cross of Christ, where the rain of forgiveness comes pouring down on us where Jesus has already done everything for us, freeing us from the need to perform for God or atone for ourselves. Trust your life to him and find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And it isn't complicated. You don't need to say long, complicated, impassioned prayers. Just like Elijah, you might want to just say a simple prayer this evening that you know that you haven't lived the life that God wants, that you want to find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And just like on Mount Carmel, you never know what kind of incredible ways God might turn up because of that simple prayer. So let me pray for all of us now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who loves to answer simple and honest prayers. Lord, please have mercy on us because we know that we do need your forgiveness. Help us to give up our lives at the foot of the cross of Christ. And may we all feel the cool rain of your forgiveness on our faces. And we do pray this for Christ's sake, Lord. Amen.